I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. So what sin allows us to do is to know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Really? To know ourselves. Yes. To be heartbroken and therefore to worship Allah and to depend on Allah in the way that we often don't when we are aware of our piety or our righteousness. It uh, introduces us to our nafs. Professor Overmeranjam, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and welcome back to the Thinking Muslim podcast. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullah. Thank you. It's great to have you with us. Now, during the month of Ramadan, Muslims look to draw closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We do this through a number of actions. Central to our worship is the abstention from food and drink. But also we increase our recitation of Quran. We try to draw closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through acts of nawafil prayer especially the Tarawir prayer and the night, the Qiyam prayers, as well as give uh, in charity, alhamdulillah. It is really a month of spiritual renewal. Now, many Muslims, and I do not exclude myself from this, feel a particular closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this month, but maybe during the remainder of the year, this spirituality wanes. Maybe that's just natural, the hustle and bustle of life takes over. But we do know that in our Islamic tradition, there are many scholars that discuss how to reach a greater status or maqam where we are constantly conscious of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and wish to reach his pleasure. Dr. Overmeer, I have invited you here today to discuss in a very practical sense the advice elucidated in the book translated uh, by the 14th, that you translated by the 14th century scholar Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyyah uh, the Madarij al-Saliqeen, or Ranks of the Divine Seekers, that looks at the place a believer should reach to be pious and attentive to our Lord. Now let's jump straight into the content. I will discuss the context of the book a little later on. From my understanding, Ibn Qayyum makes a distinction between two statuses of a believer, the Hal and the Maqam. Can you translate these terms for us and explain their significance? Right. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillah. Salatu wassalamu ala Rasulillah. The term hal means, or I translate it as state, and maqam is a station. And the way Islamic spiritual tradition, um, as it began to reflect on the believer's connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it used the metaphor of a journey to Allah. And 
In that, it broke down the journey into stations. Um, as one goes in the physical journey, and one has to make stops to replenish and reflect and look around and become established and then move to the next station. Mm-hmm. So station, maqam, if you will, or manzila, as it's also called, mm-hmm. um, comes from that. Now, hal is the state presence being. Uh, but in a spiritual sense, it's a very interesting and, and important dis- distinction yeah. in one's, if you will, self-management of one's uh, uh, connection to Allah. We all feel at moments in our lives a moment of gratitude to Allah for what Allah has given us. Hmm. That's just a glimpse. That's hal. If when it becomes rather, I should say, when that glimpse becomes somewhat more stable, it's a hal, but it goes away. What are the conditions? What are the kinds of knowledge? What are the kinds of practices, perhaps the physical company and physical practices that one needs to undertake in order to make that state permanent, mm. to make that state into a station so that one becomes grateful at that level in a permanent way. And this is something that one reiterates. So in other words, one becomes grateful to Allah in a certain way about certain things. And then based on that, one develops certain practices. And then one has another hal of a higher station, of higher possibility of, 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 of gratitude. So that state then is as if an invitation from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the believer to come higher up by showing these glimpses. For those of us who are heedless, that is most of us, we may turn down those invitations. We may not pay heed to them. But when we do, right, there is a possibility of those stations becoming, those states being permanent and becoming stations and then yet higher uh, stations and higher states open up. So I understand Ibn Qayyim, he establishes a number of ranks a believer can reach, maybe four ranks or five ranks a believer can reach. Um, outline these ranks for us and um, the differences between them. Right. So there are two things I use. Of course, this is just a translation. I'll give the Arabic and the translation. Please. There yes. are um, 100 stations, 100 manazil or maqamat, in which the journey to Allah is divided by the author of uh, Manazil al-Sayirin, uh, Abu Ismail al-Harbi al-Ansari, rahimahullah, right. um, who is, which is the original book on which Madarij is a commentary. Right. So um, those are 100 stations. Each station is further divided into three levels. And so with every station... One starts with the first level, and then uh, one seeks a higher level, a higher rank. Um, and as I said, the metaphor is a journey to Allah, right? So one enters into these stations um, and keeps coming back to them. But there is a subtle difference between the approach of Abu Ismail al-Harabi al-Ansari, whose original book is very short, you know, 50-page book. Each station is a half-page, almost a poetic, very strong, uh, beautiful, but cryptic language uh, of, you know, uh, that's it. And it's something that the Sufis of the time would memorize uh, in order to think about their practice. Madariju Salikin is a massive commentary on that text. Uh, but one important way in which uh, Ibn al-Qayyim's Madarij is different is that it emphasizes that the ordering of those stations is, um, is, is not as important as the fact that those sta- what those stations have to teach. In other words, Ibn al-Qayyim has an additional insight, which is that when, as soon as one becomes a believer, as soon as you say, La ilaha illallah, Muhammad Rasulullah, all of us 
enter into all of those stations at once. And some of us stay, if you will, at the doorstep and never take the next step, never realize that they are on the journey. Others go a few steps and that become busy or heedless and so on. Uh, and in that sense, the ordering of the stations is, is really only as important as in your journey to a degree, the, 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 the order in which you take your classes. Right. So can you give us a glimpse of what these stations are? What are these ranks that one should be seeking to achieve as one goes on that spiritual journey? Right. So Abu Ismail al-Harbi al-Ansari, the original author who was the most celebrated Sufi of his time from uh, originally from Herat, Afghanistan, that's why his nisbah is al-Harawi, um, he began his book by saying that the stations to, the, to Allah can be divided into 1,000 uh, stations, but because we people of our time don't have that capacity, I will divide it into 100 he wrote a book in Arabic called Manazil al-Sairin and in Persian called Sad Maidan. Um, and the stations are, by the way, different. They're enumerated differently by different authorities, different people of Suluk. Uh, they started as simple as five or seven or ten or twelve. And, and then Al-Harawi, which is, if you will, the most uh, developed form of that, uh, made them one hundred. Uh, the stations are usually taken from some inspiration from a verse in the Quran or Hadith uh, or um, some reference to this, the practice of, of, of worship. The very first station uh, is al-yaqaba, which is awakening. Um, so it's as simple as the first thought that comes to a believer when he or she realizes that we are going to stand before Allah and that I am on a path to Allah. That being a Muslim is a process, right? So in our modern language, we would say being a Muslim is a process. It takes some time. Well, there are people who spent their lives for centuries studying that process and this is the result of that process. Um, so you start with al-yaqadha, the awakening, and then you go to stations, initial stations, uh, such as the thought, the fikra that comes, the fikra of Allah, of the reward of Allah, Jannah, the punishment of Allah, Jahannam. And the uh, fikra of one's sins, where one stands vis-a-vis -vis Allah and the blessings of Allah compared to the sins that we have accumulated. Um, those are initial stations, and then one goes to, for instance, the station of al-muhasaba, which is when one has internalized the station, earlier stations and recognized the need for uh, tawbah, need for repentance, that station is one of the most important stations Right. And in fact, in Ibn al-Qayyim's commentary, um, a good chunk of the text, which is a couple of volumes of, of, of the total five or six volumes, are dedicated just to that chapter of Tawbah, right? something that's very um, well known to every Muslim. But we often don't realize that the word Tawbah or Astaghfirullah, right, to say Istighfar, something that we often just say, oh, you did something bad, say do Tawbah. Right, go back, uh, say sorry to Allah, that it is in fact uh, the most important spiritual station to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to know the secrets of tawbah, to know the tricks that your heart plays on you, uh, that, that nullify or negate or defeat your tawbah, and the inspiration to, uh, to tawbah. Right? So that, that's all part of, uh, of that. And uh, along with that, there's a very beautiful section um, on the wisdom of sin. Why is it that Allah allows us to commit sin? In fact, it's one of my favorite sections in the book. In, in Ibn Qayyim's book. Ibn Qayyim's book, okay. right. So it's not in the original. Yeah. The original, yeah. in fact, just gives a very terse 
reference or allusions to these things, mm-hmm. and then uh, Ibn al-Qayyim expounds on them. And what does he say about the wisdom of, of sins? Right, so... Um, if I can... So what sin allows us to do is to know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Really? To know ourselves. Yes. To be heartbroken and therefore to worship Allah and to depend on Allah in the way that we often don't when we are aware of our piety or our righteousness. It uh, introduces us to our nafs, which is so dear to Allah, that state of the knowledge that we have of ourselves, our weaknesses, and the more we know our weaknesses and the greatness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the more we know reality, the more we know al-haq. Uh, and this is a knowledge that is not merely a knowledge of an information, right, of whether X equals this or that. It's not that kind of information. It's rather the depth of awareness that then leads to a feeling and motivation and a, a compulsion to act, to feel other feelings. So that feeling of our neediness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's what sin allows us to do. Um, there is one section where Ibn al-Qayyim uh, rahimahullah talks about there are people who are um, fairly good, righteous, ordinary, if you will, better than average. Hmm. Other people look up to them as um, wonderful, righteous scholars, imams, sheikhs, khutaba, speakers. Um, and they have deadly diseases inside of them. But because they are pious, they would never kill, they would never commit zina, right? They would not do anything that is considered haram, the big ones, the big sins, right? But they have deadlier sins inside. And sometimes Allah will make them fall into a big sin out of mercy for them, because only then they would realize the dead sins of pride, the deadly sins of pride, right? Or arrogance or jealousy, or envy, um, or uh, perhaps contempt that they have, they're nurturing, that they would not, they would never come out until, uh, uh, and unless they committed sins that were outwardly and fell from people's eyes, and they were forced then to look uh, to the, upon themselves. So this is one of the wisdoms of sin. Um, another wisdom of sin is that both for yourself, for those who commit sins, and the others who are often victims of those sins or crimes, well, they both have to turn, have an occasion to turn to Allah in a way that they wouldn't if they just thought they were okay. So one thing that comes out of this journey of this text and, and this, this journey of 100 stations to Allah is the biggest sin that the mother of all sins is complacence, is to think that we are okay, that we are good enough. That's amazing. So how does one begin to chart a pathway to achieving these ranks or to attaining the types of qualities that Ibn Qayyim uh, uh, talks about? Uh, is it through worship, traditional worship, or through ibadat? Is it through improving one's character, one's akhlaq? What role does the sharia play in improving our spiritual status? That's a beautiful question, one that we must, of course, always think about, not just as human beings, we're embodied beings. The way we live um, outwardly has an effect on what we do uh, inwardly with respect vis-a-vis Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, and how our professions, our tastes, our personalities, which is something we often don't pay attention to when we talk about spirituality. All of those things, in fact, are parts of self-knowledge that are really necessary to, um, to this journey and to our success in this journey. There is, there is a Sufi saying, which is uh, incorrectly attributed to the Prophet, sometimes, man, man arafa nafsah faqad arafa rabba. Whoever knows his self knows his Lord. 
knowing yourself, um, knowing your personality, knowing the types of things that um, uh, that you like, types of things that uh, keep your interest, and then remembering that knowledge, embodying it in the process of, of knowing Allah. And in fact, that makes you better uh, in everything else that you do, in other, all of the relationship, relationships. So that's uh, the kind of knowledge that allows us to become better believers. So often there is a tension, um, perhaps false tension, perhaps a created tension of dualism, of um, knowledge versus uh, mis- you know, inner mystical practice. But uh, in Islam, and particularly in the focus uh, of Ibn al-Qayyim, that's a, that's a mistake, and that's a costly mistake, that one must have proper knowledge of Allah and proper love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in order to do most basic things right. So the very word worship is something that we often underestimate. We often think of, of worship as ritual. In fact, if you go study anthropology, they would think about, you know, they talk about ritual. And ritual in the English language uh, is, is often seen as something that is repeated and often repeated mindlessly, right? That's what almost the word ritual means. But worship, the word ibadah in Arabic uh, is defined by Ibn al-Qayyim uh, and the ulama of suluk as ultimate um, obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, total obedience to Allah with total and ultimate love for Allah. Now, people often emphasize one or the other, but bringing the two together, the, uh, the obedience to Allah, which requires knowledge, Right, which requires knowledge of the commandments of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, which requires which is a cerebral function. It requires paideya, it requires tarbiyah, it requires training, uh, it requires schooling, it requires masters and teachers, uh, it requires fiqh and hadith and Quran. But then there is an element of love, uh, which is feeling. And that's often something that's not um, you know, you cannot read it in a book. But if you don't feel the love for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then that knowledge is of no use. In fact, often I um, visualize this by using the very English way in which, uh, in, in which the English word worship is used. You, know? um, you would say that this man loves that woman so much that he worships her. Right? So it's an ultimate form of love that becomes worship. And that's the meaning of worship that is hidden in the word ibadah, right? Whereas often when we think of ibadah, it is a ritual. It's actually uh, that meaning of worship when we use it in our ordinary language of worship as, or he worships his work. That means that's the most important thing to him in real life, not merely in what you do uh, once a week or, or so on. I went to a traditional madrasa. I learned fiqh and Quran and hadith and, you know, the basics that all Muslims should learn. I was never told to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or never taught, and as you said, you can't teach it, but I never taught to find something within myself, uh, some energy within myself to to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. How do we love our creator, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Well, how do we not love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So the more we know who Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, the more you love subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, but there are sometimes defeaters or negators in our minds, uh, in our practices, the misunderstandings about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why the most beloved of people to Allah are those who make Allah beloved to his creation and his creation beloved to Allah by inviting people to Allah. الَّذِينَ يُحَبَّبُونَ اللَّهِ إِلَى النَّاسِ وَيُحَبَّبُونَ اللَّهِ النَّاسِ إِلَى اللَّهِ So that's, if you will, the, the job, the mission, the task of a believer to make this love by talking about Allah, by, uh, by becoming signs of Allah's uh, mercy, by showing mercy. Uh, one of the hadith traditions attributed to the Prophet ﷺ is 
um, that these awliya of Allah are those uh, who, وَإِذَا رُؤُوا Allah, when they are seen, Allah is remembered. But talking about love is very important, and that is something you're absolutely right to observe, that we don't do enough of. We may emphasize the power of Allah, which is, which is certainly extremely important for us, right? Because when we don't recognize the power of Allah, uh, the love or the talk of love may lead to a disease that the ulama call, ulama of suluk call ru'una or frivolity, where they think of Allah in light terms, as if a hukum, a command of Allah is something that is that could be treated in the same way as a command, uh, as a law or a norm. And in fact, this is something very much internalized. So I know many good Muslims who uh, try to do everything right, but when they know something is the law, uh, they have absolute awe of it. They will not think about disobeying. The, they would be brokenhearted if they thought they were criminals. But when it comes to something being God's command, it's rather frivolous. Like, well, you know, God forgives, no big deal. So, ru'una or frivolity is a serious disease, especially at a time where our nafs uh, our nufus are uh, are bloated, but this at the same time, what's important for us is to equally to know and talk about Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, um, but feeling the haiba, the awe of Allah, um, along with that love. And one of the ways that all of this is done in the Quran, you know, in fact, it's hidden in plain sight. There's not a, a, a page of the Quran or a passage in the Quran that you can read without some name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, in fact, most verses end with a pair, a couple of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah in Allah Azizul Hakim, Samiul Alim, Rahman al Rahim, right? These are all pairings as if the rest of the Quran is just an excuse to teach us those names of Allah. And those names are all sifat. They're all attributes, right? So they're not names as in just identifying who Allah, right? Who Allah versus other gods. Well, I, there is, there, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't need those kinds of names. His names are reminders of his attributes, reminders of effectively how and why and to, to know and love him. So there are all ways to love Allah. Asma'ullah. Al-Husna wa Sifatul Uliya. There is a beautiful saying from Imam uh, Shafi'i, Rahimahullah, who is a master of both the Arabic language and also this inner reflection. Uh, if you look at his poetry, you realize that he was a master of spiritual reflection. Um, and uh, he says everything. Uh, Everything the Sunnah says is nothing but an exegesis of the Quran. Everything in the Sunnah, uh, in, no, actually it starts before that. Everything that any scholar of Islam, any true scholar of Islam says is nothing but an exegesis of the Sunnah. And everything that is in the Sunnah is nothing but an exegesis of the Quran. And everything in the Quran is nothing but exegesis of the names of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. SubhanAllah. We live in a world which is dominated by brashness, a lack of self-restraint, consumerism, individualism. These are traits, these are qualities of the life we live in, the modernity in which we find ourselves. What you're describing, what you're describing requires a great level of self-introspection. How does one break free from these chains around us that force us not to think about ourselves, but to think about the flaws in others or think about the, uh, aspiring to the material life around us? How does one uh, achieve that level where one is consistently thinking about these character flaws and personality traits in order to improve them? Right. So let me first reflect a little on the description that you give rightly of the... Um, of the nature of modern life, that it's become busier and so on. But human beings have always struggled, right? 
Shaitan is not a new phenomenon. Sin is not a new phenomenon. And the pharaohs and Hamans and Qaruns of the world are not new. So in a sense, this is the beauty of this science, this knowledge of suluk, that ruh and our soul and its relationship to Allah, it's exactly the same struggle as the very first human being would have had. That's one thing, in a sense, that is cannot be contextualized. And so the wisdom that we hear from Adam and Noah and Ibrahim and Isa and Musa and Muhammad, those are timeless struggles. Those are the truest struggles of humankind. Everything else is an excuse for those struggles, for those insights. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has created us. In some ways, our modern life allows us a lot more time to a uh, lot more leisure time than uh, ever before, right? Now, of course, we could take sociological angle that people distract themselves a lot more today, but, but in other societies, his, historically, people have had much less time and much less luxury, and this is the case in many parts of the world where people struggle. So we actually, in some ways, have an opportunity that historically human beings have rarely had had, except for those who were hidden away in cloisters and uh, or, or were kings and therefore could boast of having all this time to themselves because they weren't, you know, others were serving them. In our case, in a sense, there is an opportunity. All kinds of distractions that we have from our cell phones and computers and other things, well, they are much less powerful than the pangs of hunger and and fear of one's safety, of safety, which still haunts so many people in the world. Um, so, in a sense, this relationship to Allah should always start with shukr, rather than complaining about the world, of what we do have. And we have a lot, both in terms of knowledge of Islam, knowledge of the world, knowledge of the folly of the world, right? That's a very important knowledge. Knowledge of our own follies. You can look at the world today and say, what's wrong with the world? But you can look at it and say, uh, what's wrong with me? Uh, and you start with this uh, this ill opinion of your nafs. That's one of the first steps that Abu Ismail al-Harawi al-Ansari uh, talks about as the first, as a necessary step without which you cannot do muhasaba or self-reckoning and you cannot do true repentance. If you don't really know, if you don't really think, um, you know, if you don't have an ill opinion of your own nafs, then you don't really know what this journey is about. Give me an example of um, some of those traits that are mentioned in this book and mentioned in book of the previous book that you mentioned. Uh, uh, Give me examples of personality traits we all should be looking out for when we go on this journey of introspection. Looking out for as in trying to acquire? Or, or, or traits that we should try to get rid of, problematic traits within uh -huh. our personality. Yeah, so I'll just give you examples because in every page there is precisely that kind of reflection on what one ought to do. One of the things that happens on this journey is that your whole mindset changes from going, what's wrong with the world, what's wrong with other people, why people annoy me, How? what can I get, to uh, what are what my feelings ought to be like, uh, what I should be given God and God's attributes and God's greatness and God's beauty. So once you are in living in awe, one of the... One of the, the worst enemies uh, of for as a soul is that it's it it compares itself to other human beings and always finds them wanting. It finds fault in them, and so when it does anything bad, it justifies by looking at them. And that's why when you are in the company of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, you can't do that. You know the greatness of Allah. Um, you know the beauty of Allah, you know the mercy of Allah, you know the attributes of Allah. So 
you go from comparing yourself to those below you to comparing yourself to the mercy of Allah. You don't compare yourself to Allah in any way, serious way, but in in what in so far as what Allah has given you, and then you compare yourself to um, other human beings who are better than you. As the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam has this beautiful advice. If that's one thing, if you want to remember from this uh, conversation today, is when it comes to this dunya, when it comes to matters of this world, of this life, look at people below you who have less than you and be grateful. Um, and when you think of virtues of afterlife, look at people above you. Because one of the things that, uh, in, that encourages you, uh, perhaps for most of us, the most important thing that encourages us to go to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is precisely that comparison with the righteous. So knowing the stories of the righteous, knowing the stories of prophets and the companions and the righteous, it changes the world in which we live. Now, one would say, remember we talked about the ranks. At higher ranks, we don't worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala just because what Allah has given us, but we worship Allah, and we only seek to reach that state. Perhaps there are only glimpses. We worship Allah for who Allah is. And that's why the very beginning of the Quran is Alhamd with Alhamd, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. Not a shukr lillah, Alhamdulillah. Because Alhamd is something deeper, more eternal, more timeless. Alhamd is what Allah uh, is uh, and His praiseworthiness in Himself before we were there, before He created us, before we had anything to thank Him for, before we even exist. So we can take ourselves out of the equation and just think about Allah and, the, and feel that uh, uh, gratitude or feel that greatness of Allah rather. Um, and at that point, like those are the higher stations that one aspires to. Um, and those reflections, even though sometimes they might sound unrealistic because I'm struggling with sin, but our mind is, is a funny thing because we always, you know, there is always room for, there is love for infinitude. There is love for much greater things that we can achieve in our lives. Um, and that's, that's the beauty of thinking about Allah. And our deen is the deen of Alhamd. You know, the, the Prophet ﷺ tells us that this ummah will be named. Every ummah will have a name, uh, ummah of every prophet. And the name of this ummah will be Alhamdun, the people of Hamd. Alhamdulillah. Um, many of my, of my listeners will know you as someone who cares deeply about the ummah and you've written persuasively about the return of the caliphate. Now, these are very political ideals. Uh, it then may be a little, I don't know, disconcerting for, for people to see you talk about matters of spirituality. How do you reconcile these very material objectives of caliphate and ummah and politics with spirituality? Well, so the question for a Muslim perhaps would be, how have people managed to separate those things? Because... You know, if you look at the life of the Prophet and the life of all the Prophets, um, one, their connection to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was what leads them to come back to people, right? And to struggle for the reform, struggle to implement the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, because in our deen, Obedience to Allah and worship to Allah is always embodied. And that embodiment doesn't uh, just mean that I should, uh, you know, in words, one sartorial choices that I'm going to dress this way. And that's what embodiment means that I embody the concern and the command um, uh, of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, there is a, there is a, a, a beautiful remark. 
by a, a, a Sufi, um, I believe, in fourth century, who says that Muhammad, peace be upon him, went, you know, to Jabal Nur, the Mount of Light, and there he received revelation. And then he came back, and I would not have, right? But the Prophet Sallallahu mission began after he came back, uh, rather than, you know, he didn't go and uh, seclude himself from the people after that, except at night, right? Uh, when he would pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, well, and every prayer is a, is, a, is a small form of seclusion when you're with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. Um, and we, of course, Ramadan, and this is, I guess, fitting to talk about that. Ramadan is that time which is we separate out from our ordinary time uh, almost as a training session to be with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, if all year was Ramadan, we wouldn't appreciate it as much. So um, uh, it's, it's a blessing for, for what it is. Um, one of the ways, you know, this was one of the ways in which the people of the... So by the way, you know, the word tasawwuf, which becomes sort of, especially after Orientalist renderings, uh, renderings of Islam, it becomes a thing uh, that is then given to all various spiritual movements in Islam. But people who were true Sufis, you know, there was a, there's a famous saying, the Sufism was a reality without a name and then became a name without a reality. That's very much the case. People who talk about Allah, um, they don't need to talk about names and labels. And so they actually, the people who are later called Sufis, or maybe they were identified as Sufis, they would not call themselves Sufis. They would often be referred just to as Al-Qawm, the people. And it would often be meant, understood from the context who we are talking about. Sometimes they would be critical of Sufism as a movement, but would contribute to precisely this discourse. So that's why I don't use that term very much, nor does Ibn al-Qayyim. Was Ibn, Ibn al-Qayyim a Sufi? I don't think so. He wouldn't identify as a Sufi because he would say that the way of the Prophet ﷺ was superior, um, but he never condemns the Sawwuf, right? He wants to learn from it. He wants to learn from its wisdom. But Sufism was a particular movement in Islamic history, one of the many spiritual movements that sort of came to uh, just give become the identifier of everything because it was in Baghdad and Baghdad was the center of the world. Um, so they call themselves Ahlul Waqt or, uh, or people, Ahlul Awqat, the people of time. What they meant today, when we use the word Ahlul Waqt or Ibn al Waqt, it means somebody who's modern. But it, what it meant to them, the way they call, because this enterprise of being with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala requires time requires giving your time to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you, one gives one's time to Allah um, in two ways. One, by the time to take up Allah's cause, the cause of, um, of implementing what God has said. But then there is time that one must give to Allah that is between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Rasulullah was in fact instructed in the beginning um, uh, and, and that command continued um, in Surah Al-Muzzammil, one of the earliest surahs, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commands the Prophet sallam to spend and do Qiyamul Layl and um, in Surah um, you know فَإِذَا فَرَغْتَ فَانْصَبْ وَإِلَىٰ رَبِّكَ فَرْغَبْ It's a beautiful verse, because what it says is, فَإِذَا فَرَغْتَ فَانْسَبْ O Prophet, when you're done with your job, right? When you're done with your task, which was his task to do Allah's work. But what's really interesting about it, فَإِذَا فَرَغْتَ فَانْسَبْ فَانْسَبْ in Arabic means now focus. After you're done with the job of da'wah, now focus, وَإِلَىٰ رَبِّكَ فَرْغَبْ Now you turn in رَغْبَ, in uh, eagerness to your Lord alone. 
That is, now you turn to worship. So that was the fuel, if you will, um, for the prophet and the companions. And, and so one thing that we do less than we ought to uh, often, which is value our time alone with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whether it's during our prayers or at night um, or uh, during pilgrimage uh, or i'tikaf um, during Ramadan. But we should have this in our mind that this journey requires spending time. And often the more time you can take out uh, for thinking about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, doing dhikr and shukr and muhasaba and tawbah and all of the other stations, um, then that's, if you will, your basic currency. The basic currency in which your worth on Day of Judgment will be measured is how much time you spent um, in this journey to Allah, in the dhikr of Allah. In, in short, this is dhikr of Allah, right? All of this is dhikr of Allah, remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But the dhikr of Allah is, if you will, all of this is to give texture to your dhikr of Allah. These, all of these stations come back to you the moment you remember Allah. Um, so, you know, our worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is only as good as our knowledge of Allah, our embodied knowledge of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why one person, when they remember Allah, perhaps all they remember is the, you know, the harsh commands of their parents to, you know, if you don't do this, you'll go to hell. And, and maybe they pray for that reason, God reward them for that. But then somebody else who has undertaken the journey, uh, who has put in the effort, when they remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, all of the fruit of this right, um, comes to them in that moment. So when they think of Allah, they're overwhelmed with love and um, positive emotions and the worries wither away. Uh, and this is described in the Quran, in fact, so powerfully at the beginning of Surah Al Anfal, when Allah says, um, الْمُؤْمِنُونَ The believers are those and only those who, when Allah is mentioned, their hearts tremble in fear. Just the mention of, the, of Allah. And wajal is a kind of loving fear, very gentle loving fear, that just the mention of Allah, like they, their hearts tremble. وَإِذَا تُلِيَتْ عَلِيهِمْ آيَاتُهُ زَادَتْهُمْ إِمَانًا And every time uh, the Qur'an is recited, a sign of Allah is recited to them, is pointed out to them, um, their iman increases. So imagine what it would take for us to to make this ayah true for us, that when the name of Allah is mentioned, our state changes. That requires knowing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's the work. That's the journey. I want to understand the relationship between Ibn Qayyim uh, and uh, Ibn Taymiyyah. Now, I understand Ibn Qayyim was the student of Ibn Taymiyyah, a very devout student. He shared some time in in prison with uh, his teacher. Uh, we characterize Ibn Taymiyyah today as someone who does not lie, who goes against excessive spirituality. Uh, maybe some use Ibn Taymiyyah to, uh, to argue against uh, Sufi traditions, for example. Uh, was Ibn Qayyim here someone who reflected the ideals of his teacher? Or in a way, is he removing himself or going against some of those uh, ideals that his teacher believed in? He very much reflects the teachings of Ibn Taymiyyah here. In fact, um, if you look at in some matters of theology and jurisprudence, Ibn Qayyim has some usually slight disagreement with Ibn, Ta Ibn Taymiyyah, his teacher, which is very common. Uh, but when it comes to this there is not a single moment, single occasion in the book I found that he disagreed with Ibn Taymiyyah. Because Ibn Taymiyyah was known as, uh, in fact, in his own lifetime, he was known even to the, his opponents. 
Imam Subki, for example, who is known to be his opponent both in uh, in, in jurisprudence and aqidah um, issues, he actually says that in his taqwa, in his piety, um, he reminds us of earlier people like the Sahaba. That um, and 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 so this idea that he was against excessive spirituality. Uh, would not make sense to anybody in you know who knew him. In fact, people of Asham, people of Damascus, where he was from, he was very much seen as a saint. Uh, so much so that the king, uh, the Mamluk king, um, feared that he might take his power, and he was called to Egypt for that reason. Um, and some of the um, his students describe his worship and his. Um, his uh, uh, um, worship and the feeling of the love of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was so much that for Ibn Taymiyyah, he would in fact leave the city and go into the wilderness um, in his worship because it would be overwhelming for him. So he emotionally uh, very much was overwhelmed by, and this is actually, this actually uh, reflects in his fatawa as well. You know, there's uh, uh, usually Imam al-Ghazali, rahimahullah, is seen as the paragon of the sawwuf, and Ibn Taymiyyah is seen as the opponent. But that's not quite the case. Imam al-Ghazali, in fact, was somebody who was more academic, who was trying to introduce the sawwuf to the work. But himself, he wasn't recognized as a Sufi of his time. Um, whereas Ibn Taymiyyah had mastered... Um, the teachings of the Sawwuf or the teachings that of the Sunnah that he believed were superior to the Sawwuf. Ibn Taymiyyah himself or Ibn al-Qayyim, neither of them called themselves Sufis. Um, we do have one some record that Ibn Taymiyyah may have, um, you know, there is a, uh, an account that he may have uh, taken the bay'ah of the Qadiriya tariqah, uh, but that depends on the authenticity of the document. So historians typically tend to look at the actual writings, and there you find very strong spirituality, a very strong sense of uh, adherence to dhikr, adhkar, adherence to, you know, he would say that if I don't make my dhikr after fajr, for example, he would sit for hours to do dhikr, and if I don't do that, he wouldn't be able, he said he wouldn't be able to do the rest of what he does. So when it comes to this issue specifically, Ibn al-Qayyim uh, all, is almost a, a muqallid of Ibn Taymiyyah. Uh, where, and, and in all other matters, he is in fact much more uh, of his own jurist and, and theologian. I want to understand where Ibn al-Qayyim differed with other Sufi movements or other strands of spirituality. I understand that he developed on the ideas of Sheikh Harawi al-Ansari, but he also has mild criticism of Harawi al-Ansari's uh, perspectives. Um, can you just fit him in uh, to the wider picture of Sufism and uh, his uh, potential criticisms of some of these movements? So the the stereotypical understanding of what Sufism is um, and the Hanbalis and Ash'aris and all of these are, are usually remarkably off base. To give you an example, um, Abu Ismail al-Harawi al-Ansari was the master Sufi of his time, but he was absolutely dead set against Ash'arism and Kalam. In fact, he was expelled from his city, Hirat, because he could not stop condemning Kalam. Um, so the idea that, right, at, because at that time in history, the Sawuf and Kalam were uh, at loggerheads. They were two different ways of reaching God, and they were seen as incompatible. Kalam being? Kalam being theology, rational, rational theology, mm. scholastic theology. Okay. Today, they are seen as almost necessary part of the traditional package. This was not the case historically for the most part. Similarly, um, uh, an interesting, for instance, difference between Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn al-Qayyim. Ibn Taymiyyah and Ibn al-Qayyim come from the Hanbali tradition, 
And Hanbalis were traditionally very strong in their spirituality, and they condemned um, scholastic theology because it was cold, rational, and it didn't quite capture the greatness of God in the same way. Uh, at least that was the claim, right? Um, another very interesting point that sort of sheds light on this, uh, again, what we find to be ironic today, there are Sufis who would say, uh, burst out in ecstatic uh, statements, ecstatic outbursts. They're called shatahat. Um, Al-Ghazali, uh, rahimahullah, found those to be unacceptable, in fact, and he would say if such statements are blasphemous and should be punished as such. Ibn Taymiyyah, as well as Ibn Al-Qayyim, they would say that, in fact, this hal that we were talking about earlier is a real thing. And when it, when it overtakes real, true worshippers, true salikin, one does, in fact, say things that one doesn't know. It is like being in the fullest state of, fullest stupor. It's like in intoxication. And therefore, people who say that, who are, in fact, in that state, they should not be considered responsible for those. Not that they said These, this is a good thing to do so, but rather it can be excused. It is attributed to their weakness, to their spiritual, perhaps we would say to their psychological weakness. But the state is real. One does feel the love of God in such a way that one says things one doesn't know. Um, and so, you know, Al-Ghazali, who we consider to be the Sufi, is much harsher against it. And Ibn Taymiyyah, whom we think to be the anti-Sufi, in fact says, well, uh, unless they mean to say it in a theological sense, when they are in their senses, we shouldn't hold them accountable. That's really interesting. I mean, in Islamic history and, and today, we have Salafis, we have Sufis, we have those who believe in Madahibs, we have those who... Uh, believe that taqlid is, is a problem. We have Muslims who follow, who are attracted to Islam through many spiritual paths. Now, is this a natural thing and something to be praised? Maybe we can praise the diversity within Islam that it allows for people to access the faith in very different ways. Or should we be aiming to regiment Muslims into a more coherent intellectual and spiritual tradition? So that's a very interesting, very important question. Um, on the one hand, furqa or, or disagreement and difference is something that is explicitly condemned by the Prophet and in the Quran, and 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 Allah Subhanahu wa Taala mentions it in the Quran as a punishment. Excuse me, tafraqa was a punishment uh, for people who began to disagree about the book. Because baghiyan baynahum, usually in, as they transgressed against each other. So what the ulama draw from this is that the kind of tafraqa or discord, what is the di disagreement that is prohibited is that which leads to discord, right? Hatred. Um, but the, it's also the reality that both in, you know, in jurisprudence and in other matters, The Prophet ﷺ said, Everyone who does their best to understand um, God's command is correct, even when they get it wrong. They're wrong, but they're correct insofar as they tried their best. And, and so this attitude has led in Islam to, the, to a fundamental acceptance of diversity in matters of Uh, legitimate epistemological disagreement, you know, there's a limit, our knowledge is limited, this is the best we can do. Um, one of the ways in which, now speaking as a student of history of Islam, one of the ways in which Allah has um, given uh, guidance to this ummah to, is by um, allowing different groups to specialize in 
and grow in different directions so that they can come back and contribute to the whole. Um, the Sawwuf, for example, um, focuses on a more sort of universal yet more subjective feeling of connection to God. But it has, if you will, a blind spot that it, it is not anchored in objective discourse and it could, uh, it could, if you will, run off in a direction that is more self-serving or influenced by foreign influences. Fiqh, for example, jurisprudence or usul is, a, is, is something that's directly anchored in the words of the Qur'an and the Sunnah, but it has a characteristic disease that it can dry up, that people can compete with each other in being smarter, in outsmarting each other, and that becomes their purpose, right? Um, similarly, people who um, uh, dispute or talk about attributes of God, on the one hand, it is the highest enterprise. On the other hand, when they disagree with each other, they tend to often fall into tafriqa of the highest kind. They hate each other. Um, so each of these discourses, and there are others, um, similarly historical, uh, you know, uh, scholarship, um, learning lessons from history has its benefits and its 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 pros and cons. And the ummah thrives by this constant al-amr bil-ma'ruf al-munkar, commanding right and forbidding wrong, and having this openness and possibility that another group that specializes in uh, another branch, another way of looking at this infinitely complex life um, has something that we have forgotten. And the ulama of Islam have recognized this. Uh, so uh, um, Ibn al-Lama Ibn al-Jawzi, one of the, the greatest doctors of, of the soul, if you will, um, uh, wrote a book called Talbis Iblis, the guises of shaitan, of how um, shaitan comes to every group in its characteristic diseases, in its characteristic, uh, characteristic deceptions, so deceptions of shaitan. Uh, and that's, uh, uh, that's really, I think, um, it's a mechanism of the way Allah protects this ummah is because nobody can claim monopoly over absolute truth. Finally, Dr. Anzum, you've been in the UK for a number of days now. Uh, you've visited a number of cities. You've met with the Muslim community here. What's your reflections on uh, the Muslims you've met here and the community you've, you've experienced? Uh, now you're just looking for some praise. Now, it is true, I, I have to say that I'm very fond of, of Muslims in, in the UK. Your community, uh, mashallah, in many ways is, first of all, it's just uh, objectively more condensed. Yes, People are, it's a small country. It's yes. a smaller country, yes. there are a large number of Muslims, and they, alhamdulillah, tend to stay Muslim, they tend to stick to each other. Um and despite all the dis disagreements or whatnot you may have, there is some really great blessings that people, uh, even when they're disagreeing, they're disagreeing for Allah. And, uh, and many people, as a result, are more religious. And even when they are religious, almost in competition with each other, um, which is natural, um, I, I do find that to be um, uh, refreshing and uh, not to say that we don't have that in the United States, but the United States is much bigger and communities, uh, a community, Muslim community is smaller. Um, and, uh, and also there are many such things that we do need to learn from our brothers and sisters in, in the UK. Um, another thing, of course, that's, you know, of great value to me is that uh, UK Muslims are very umatic Um they care about what's going on in in the Muslim world and other places in the world. I'm very impressed. Um, you know, you have biggest protests, whether it's war and and uh, this or that place, or uh, or or famine or other things. So, so may Allah bless you and increase you in that. That's really inspiring. Jazakallah khair. Thank you very much for your time today. Jazakallah khair. You're most welcome.
Please remember to subscribe to our social media and YouTube channels and head over to our website thinkingmuslim.com to sign up to my weekly newsletter. Jazakallah khair. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.